Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I, um, my name is Kevin Burr, and uh, if you are here for the ghost with the most, uh, that's this session. So if you're here by accident, what a happy accident. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> I, I do want to start off by saying that uh, the very first time I presented at any type of conference or lectureship or anything like that, there were three people in the room, and one of them had to be there because he was introducing me. So I consider anything at three or higher to be a success, so thank you very much. That, um, even if you don't understand a word I've said, I will consider it a success. Okay. So, so let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, the idea for this presentation actually came from a few different sources. So a professor in a, in a course that I am taking at school made uh, certain comments about demon possession in antiquity and even was comparing it with some modern reports uh, of uh, demon possession uh, elsewhere. And um, another idea came from a couple of, of news stories that uh, were are fairly, fairly recent, maybe a couple years ago. Uh, one, there was a story about American witches in mass cursing the current president at a certain time on a certain day. Now, regardless of which way you, vo you voted, I would hope that Christians would say, that's not a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, and then secondly, there was a, 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 this was 2016, a story of a well-known hip-hop artist shared a video of herself on Twitter cleaning up what she called three years of brujeria, which is Spanish for witchcraft. Cleaning up three years of brujeria from her kitchen uh, from her kitchen closet, and specifically what she meant was chicken sacrifices to perform her rituals. And I've got, uh, that's, uh, if anybody knows the name, Azalea Banks. That was her. She shared that video on Twitter. Interestingly enough, PETA came out in response to that and said that Azalea Banks could be a good witch without having to use chickens for sacrifices. <laughs> I didn't know PETA was in a position to <laughs> arbitrate what made it for a good or bad witch, but... It is what it is. And then lastly, on the plane, on the flight here, so we flew in from Nashville on Sunday to hit up some of the local parks around here to do some hiking. There was a documentary about the real life magic behind the magic in Harry Potter. Harry Potter's obviously a fantasy world. I've read all the books. I may or may not have read all of them in one summer to impress a young lady that I eventually married. But, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I, I love the books, enjoyed the movies, uh, but the documentary took maybe kind of a, a rose-colored picture of magical practices in ancient and medieval times. And so I, I mentioned these to say that in much modern practice of witchcraft, and especially in the ancient mindset, there really is a close connection between witchcraft and demons. And there's an abundance of magical texts from the ancient world, texts and amulets, that call upon demons for aid or attempt to protect the practitioner or wearer from malevolent demons. Now, in a Judeo-Christian mindset, demon always is a bad thing. But in a Greco-Roman and a pagan mindset, demon is kind of neutral, kind of like fire. It can be good, it can be bad, and it just depends on how you want to use it. So I'd say that while it's generally a good thing, it's generally a good thing for historically marginalized groups to, to receive fair space for their views. This does, of course, heighten the likelihood that practitioners of witchcraft will become increasingly mainstream even here in the Western marketplace of ideas. And so to better acquaint us with some of the phenomena that will likely become the new normal, 
you know, maybe, maybe I'm you know, an, an alarmist, but I think it is coming. I think, so in this study, I wanted to look at ancient Judeo-Christian demonology, paying particular, uh, particular attention to demonic interactions with human beings, and then to juxtapose some of that type of interaction with Holy Spirit indwelling like we see in the books of Luke and Acts. And so these two phenomena are, are superficially similar. There, there's a, a filling of an entity with an external entity, being filled with some sort of foreign spiritual entity. But the differences make a difference. And the differences yield remarkably dissimilar social consequences. And so we'll work our way through Hebrew Bible and Apocrypha and some other types of things to get a broad view of what did people think about demons back then so that will help inform us when we get to things that we can maybe more easily relate to like the New Testament and then help maybe inform us afterwards for, uh, for further conversation. So that's, the, that's kind of our roadmap for the rest of our time this morning. So in the Hebrew Bible, demons and demonic activity are actually pretty rare when compared with what we see in later Jewish texts, and especially the New Testament as well. There are two specific Hebrew terms that are used to refer to demon. One is shade, shade, and the other is sa'ir. And they always occur in the plural. As the first is found in something like uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, and another in Psalm 106, verse 37. So in Deut Deuteronomy 32, which is the song of Moses, Moses is admonishing the Israelites not to follow after their forefathers by turning away from God. And he mentions specifically how, quote, they made him jealous with strange gods, with abhorrent things. They provoked him. They sacrificed to demons, to Shadim, not God. I'm quoting from the NRSV. Psalm 106 says uh, how the psalmist recalls how the Israelites mingled with the Canaanites and participated in their sacrificial practices rather than uprooting and destroying them. And Psalm 106, verses uh, 36 through 38 begin, quote, They served their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons, Shadim. They poured out innocent blood. Now these Shadim, that's uh, the plural, Shade is the singular, they're related to entities known from Mesopotamian demonology. Nathan, you walked in at a great time because we're talking about Mesopotamian demonology and I know that's your expertise. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> But, and so the, uh, this word shade, Hebrew word shade is linguistically related to an Akkadian word shedu, shedu, which could simply mean spirit or more often demon and usually had a malevolent connotation. And a shedu could destroy one's health just as easily as it could protect it. So sacrifices to keep it placated were advisable, hence the Israelites engaging in these sacrificial practices. So another Hebrew term was sa'ir, it's usually translated as something like goat demon or satyr, something along those lines. And if you've been up to the Getty Villa, there's a, a beautiful statue of a drunken satyr right there in the middle of the pool. It's something that you know, would have been very common in, in a Greco-Roman world to, 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 to see this kind of thing, and in an ancient Near Eastern context as well. So a satyr can, or excuse me, satyr can just mean goat, like in Genesis 17, or Genesis 37, verse 17. Um, or in Leviticus 4, 24, he lay, shall lay his hand on the head of the goat on the side ear. 
Uh, there are a couple of seats uh, up here up front if anybody wants to be brave and make a trek all the way up here. Um, but in Leviticus 17, verses 2 through 7, Moses commands the people to bring their sacrifices to the door of the tent of the meeting, quote, so that they may no longer offer their sacrifices to goat demons, to Sa'irim, to whom they prostitute themselves. And goat demons is also translated elsewhere in Second Chronicles, Isaiah, and a couple times in Isaiah. So these two terms refer particularly to demons, but they don't really give us much detail about what these demons do. And that's part of our focus of our study today is how do demons affect individuals or affect groups. And so I think that we could infer reasonably that from these contexts, these demons prompted the Israelites, tempted, you know, coerced, however we can hash that out. They, they prompted apostate Israelites to sacrifice Israelite children. And they were joining in the sacrificial practice of the Canaanites, and that's the very thing mentioned in Psalm 106 there. But these are just, beyond that, though, there are two peculiar instances, and if you are familiar with your Old Testament, you might know where I'm going. Um, there's a, there's a, 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 a phrase that is interesting in the, uh, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and following, uh, an evil or harmful, however you uh, want to translate this Hebrew word, <coughs> an evil or harmful spirit from the Lord came to terrify or torment Saul. So in this verse, uh, chapter, 1 Samuel 16, 13, in this verse, the Hebrew Bible reads Ruach uh, Ra'ah. And the NRSV accurately, very literally translate that, translate that as simply evil spirit. Maybe that's a little less nuanced, but the ESV says harmful spirit. Both ideas are, are pretty accurate. The uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates this phrase pneuma poniron, which is a phrase that occurs occasionally in the New Testament. And so it's interesting to note that in 1 Samuel 16.14, 16.16, and 18.10, so four places, the four places where this evil spirit, where this harmful spirit is mentioned, the author explicitly states that each time it's a spirit sent from God. And that raises a whole host of questions that we simply just don't have time to get into. But the Hebrew term for, for sent based on how it's used in these contexts, can mean something like rush toward or rush upon or rush into. Uh, can also maybe mean to force entry into. And so this same term depicts how the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon or enters into Samson in uh, Judges 14 and in Judges 15. And also the prophets whom Saul encounters and then later temporarily prophesies with before they begin to fall into a prophetic frenzy. The, you, the term used for this prophetic frenzy, frenzy is related to the term uh, Navi. And if you know the divisions of the Hebrew Bible, yeah, it, the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, this Hebrew abbreviation called Tanakh, because you might have heard Tanakh before. The so Torah, Navaim, which is prophets, and Ketuvim, which is writings. And so Nav, Navaim is just plural prophets, Navi is uh, prophet. So the, Samuel in first, uh, the episode in 1 Samuel 18.10 involves a spirit which uh, rushed upon Saul, and it caused him either to uh, prophesy, that's a possibility, or probably a better possibility, in some sense to rage, since Saul in some kind of rage. 
And so the sense of the New Revised Standard and the English Standard Translation, they say, rave within his house. Now, I doubt that meant with strobe lights and glow sticks and things like that. <laughs> but Saul's <laughs> servants, however, Saul's servants clearly view this action as unwelcome. They, they see Saul doing this and think this is obviously not a good thing. And this, because it mentions specifically, this evil spirit torments Saul. So the, the word for torment here is, it can mean to, like, to terrify or frighten someone. The Greek translation of this word in the Septuagint suggests that maybe some physical harm has come to Saul. Maybe something like choking or strangling. Now, it could just be metaphorically. And uh, there's some other options for uh, translations elsewhere in, um, in the Liddell Scott Jones, uh, a big lexicon of classical Greek, where something like vex or torment. And I think we can all agree that we need to start bringing the word vex back into common usage. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so the Septuagint reading may indicate that this evil spirit has caused some physical harm. And the, the Hebrew, it's kind of up in the air as to what exactly has happened. But after the incident in 1 Samuel 18.10, there's just no further mention of this particular spirit. It appears as if the spirit serves no more purpose and or no longer troubled Saul. It may have happened, we just don't know. But from a literary perspective, the evil spirit served to introduce Saul to David. Maybe reintroduce them, rather. And to bring these two into proximity and thereby juxtaposition, which is made clear in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, where David receives his anointing and experiences the reception of the Spirit of the Lord, which Saul lost immediately following in 16:14. So Saul's only relief from this evil spirit comes, ironically, from the hand of his eventual replacement. And so in a case where music soothes the savage soul, David plays his lyre whenever Saul is tormented by this evil spirit, and it eventually relieves Saul. The, the contrast between these two men is most evident in 1810 where Saul tries to pin David to the wall while David is in the process of playing his lyre, thus soothing Saul's torment. And if you've ever been in ministry, you know how sometimes it feels like you are trying to soothe the souls of the people who are trying to kill you. <laughs> Quick caveat, I work at a great church, but I'm not unaware of some things that friends have encountered. So the political and military contrast between Saul and David has already been, been made apparent, and David's well liked by all in 1 Samuel 17 and 18 and so on. But the spiritual contrast is more subtle. So David endowed with the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is the only one capable of soothing Saul's afflictions and treats Saul justly, even after Saul, who is tormented by an evil spirit, attempts to kill the one person of making him whole, hence ministry. And I just find that this is kind of an interesting moment of self-sacrifice and servant leadership from David. David is not a model to be followed, absolutely, but in this instance, I, I, I think really he demonstrates how he's a man after God's own heart here. Precisely how David's playing Sue's this spirit is not stated. But in its ancient Near Eastern context, the efficacy of David's actions just required no explanation. And it's so frustrating for us because there's so many things where we think, wait a sec, why does that work? We don't know. But later texts, later Jewish texts, especially coming from the Second Temple period, like the book of Tobit and certain portions from the Dead Sea Scrolls, depict demon possession and various means of exercising demons not unlike what we see in 1 Samuel. So in Tobit chapter 3, 
we read of a demon named Asmodeus who plagued a woman named Sarah who had married seven men, but before consummation, each night, the demon had killed each husband. If you've never read the book of Tobit, please do. It's, it's entertaining. It's got a great message about faithfulness to Yahweh. It's, it's just a lot of fun. But the angel Raphael, so again, keep in mind this is, uh, this is apocryphal, and so there are named angels beyond just Gabriel and Michael. The angel Raphael, who left his brothers Leonardo and the other guys so back in New York. I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s. So. But the angel Raphael, who's disguised for much of the story, is the traveling companion of the protagonist, Tobias, son of Tobit, who was carried away in the Assyrian captivity. Raphael was sent to heal Tobit of blindness and to exorcise Asmodeus from killing Sarah's final husband, which is eventually to be revealed the young protagonist, Tobias. Like I said, it's a, it's a love story, it's drama, you've got demons and exorcisms, it's great. So in a moment of foreshadowing, after Tobias caught a large fish, the angel Raphael, who's still disguised at this point of the story, instructs him to keep the fish's liver and heart, which he says are useful for exorcising a demon as well as the fish's gall to cure blindness. I would prefer cataract surgery, but maybe you wouldn't. So long story short, Tobias was given Sarah in marriage, and he, quote, this is a quote from Tobit chapter 8, he remembered the words of Raphael, and he took the fish's liver and heart out of the bag. They've been traveling for a few times. Imagine the smell. He took the fish's liver and heart out of the bag where he had them and put them on the embers of the incense. The odor of the fish repelled the demon that he fled to the remotest parts of Egypt. This story takes place in Assyria. But Raphael followed him and at once bound him there hand and foot. That's Tobit chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And so besides being really the earliest depiction of exorcism in Second Temple literature, it's also interesting to note that in this instance, if you kind of look at the history of our literature here, this appears to be, if not the first, one of the first times where an evil entity behaves apparently independently of God's command. And again, that raises, raises a lot of other interesting questions that we simply don't have time to, to dig into. The means of exorcism in Tobit and in the story of David and Saul involves apotropaism, apotropaism the practice of using techniques such as charms and spells to ward off demonic influence. Prayers and hymns that address God and ask his protection from evil spirits fall under this category as well. Apotropaic means of exorcism seem to have become the norm in later practice, given the prevalence of such prayers and amulets found during the Second Temple period. So earlier texts like the, some of the priestly material in Leviticus 19 and even the priestly blessing in Numbers uh, number 6, 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, they seem to have been this been used this way occasionally. The earliest copy that we found of any Hebrew text of the Bible whatsoever comes from these little tiny pair of silver scrolls that it took archaeologists and scientists years to be able to unroll because they were so old and so fragile that they didn't want to break them. They would have crumbled. But as they gradually unrolled them, they found Hebrew of number six on there. The Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. The thinking is that that 
would have been used as some kind of protection against some demonic influence. If you've got that, it's like having your cross necklace or you know, we don't do holy water generally in churches of Christ, but um, something along those lines. And that's the thinking. And so that would be apotropaism. So these and similar passages have shared special significance in the Dead Sea Scroll. So number six, some things from Leviticus 19, other passages, where frequent mention in the Dead Sea Scrolls is made of evil or demonic spirits. So fragments of Tobit 6, what we, some of what we read earlier, have been found at Qumran. There are also uh, other, other fragments, uh, like in the Damascus document, found in the caves of Qumran that mention uh, about uh, folks who are, quote, ruled by the spirits of Baliel. And Baliel serves it, it kind of in, in a comparable role in, for the Dead Sea community as uh, maybe Satan serves for, uh, for New Testament. And so there's, uh, I, could, I could go through a lot of these kinds of things, but um, <coughs> here's, uh, here's an interesting <coughs> quote from the, from the rule of the community, the pa- uh, uh, manuscript found from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, there are the spirits of truth and falsehood. Upright character and fate originate with the habitation of light, perverse with the fountain of darkness. The authority of the Prince of Light extends to the governance of all righteous people, therefore they walk in the paths of light. Correspondingly, the authority of the angel of darkness embraces the governance of all wicked people, so they walk in the paths of darkness. So references to the sons of Baal on the Dead Sea Scroll do kind of bring us closer to a better understanding of New Testament era demonology. And the phrase sons of can mean literal offspring, like it does a few times in the New Testament, or it can mean simply like family, like the sons of Israel. Uh, you know, that's in our in more recent translations, you uh, say children of Israel, and it means just the whole nation of Israel. But the phrase can also mean someone who's described of like character. And so yeah, they're similar to the action of the metaphorical father. You know, when Jesus says you know, to the Pharisees, you're sons of your father, and that kind of thing. So what is meant by sons of Baal? Now, some light may, may be shed on this issue by looking at some examples of some of the non-sectarian literature found in the Qumran caves, such as First Enoch. First Enoch is a work of the Pseudepigrapha. This is a fascinating book, and again, after you, after you read Tobit, and you enjoy it, and you want something really strange and peculiar, and something that might shed a little bit of light into the Russell Crowe and Noah that came out a few years ago, remember that? Uh, read First Enoch, at least the first 36 chapters. And you might think, 36 chapters? Like, whoa, that's a lot. Some of the chapters are like two or three verses long. You can find it online. Um, <clears throat> first Enoch, chapter 6. It was written a lot longer after Enoch lived. But First Enoch, chapter 6, retells the story of Genesis 6. And the Nephilim, this, the offspring of this enigmatic sons of God and the daughters of men. To some Jewish interpreters of antiquity, the parental differentiation between sons of God and daughters of men in Genesis 6 suggested suggested a possible reading that the offspring were semi-divine and human. Like I said, to some Jewish interpreters in antiquity. Genesis 6-4 reads, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, where the sons of God went into the daughters of men who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, wars of renown. So the precise meaning of Genesis 6 in context is debated. Again, that raises a lot of interesting questions we just can't get to right now. But, from the perspective of First Enoch, especially chapters 1 through 36, which is also called the Book of the Watchers, 
they argue that they believe that this is an angelic and human union which yielded giants who caused extraordinary destruction and bloodshed on the earth. So 1 Enoch uh, chapter 7 describes how the leader of these angels that rebelled against God compelled other angels and influenced other angels to go with him to uh, teach people things like magic and um, you know, witchcraft and things like that and also uh, induced some of these evil angels to uh, take wives and they bore children to them. And so these women bear these children and they're giants and eventually they have to, uh, they have to answer for their crimes. And so in the midst of God's explanation to Enoch who is sent to condemn these, uh, these evil angels, God says this, But now the giants who are born from the union of the spirits and the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies, because from the day that they were created, from the holy ones that became the watchers, their first origin is the spiritual foundation. They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. So once these giants die, their spirit becomes basically demons on the earth. That's the perspective of First Enoch. Very, very, very bizarre for what we're used to. But that's uh, that was this book. This First Enoch was everywhere in the ancient uh, Jewish world. So. Judaism, before and during the time of the New Testament, had undergone a slow but irreversible process of Hellenization. That's why you have major Jewish authors in the time of Jesus, like Philo and Josephus, writing Greek, and writing pretty sophisticated Greek. Um, it's appropriate to kind of look at what, some things, what are some things that uh, Greco-Roman authors may have said about, about some demons about demons and demonology, about what pagan perspectives were. Basically, what we see in Plutarch and in other <coughs> pagan sources is not a systematic demonology, but a series of overlapping ideas that in some instances are contradictory. So, for example, in Homer, Homer can use the term demon, uh, the Greek term daimon, interchangeably with God, with theos, to refer to the Olympian deities. And due to connections with demons and the divine, the term could also simply refer to fate or destiny. Demons could be viewed as the intermediaries of the gods. And then demons began to be blamed for whatever negative things happened, be it meteorological disasters or even the immoralities of the gods. Some pagans argued that it was demons who committed these heinous acts that were a attributed to Zeus and others, and also demons who accepted immoral acts of worship and or appeasement, like child sacrifice and other things along those lines. So to summarize, pagans, and I have a lot more that I've cut out just for the sake of time, but to summarize, basically pagans believed that demons could serve as a circumlocution for the gods, as intermediaries for the gods, or as scapegoats to exonerate the gods from behavior unbefitting them. Not to mention that demons could exact punishment on behalf of the gods, or even could be said to represent fate. And so, it's not really this place, the place of this study to offer a, a defense for the inconsistencies of pagan demonology, but that's simply a, a way to highlight some of how pagans understood demons, and, and these ideas did influence Jewish ideas uh, of demons and so forth. There was a lot of cultural give and take. 
The New Testament just simply never speculates on the origins of demons, and that's okay with me. But that's okay with me. From kind of a Christological perspective, that's okay with me. Their presence and activity are just simply assumed. They're here, and we've got to deal with them because they work under the power of Satan. The Old Testament expresses similar disinterest in demonic and really satanic origins, and that gets us into other issues we can't get into. But it's at least evident that the New Testament shares and may, may even at times be informed by some of the understanding of these entities, perhaps presented in uh, both materials found in Enoch and in some pagan materials. So that, that is to say that in the New Testament, spiritual beings that are neither God nor his angels, uh, that there are, there are spiritual beings that are neither God nor his angels, and according to the New Testament perspective, these forces oppose God and at times inflict physical and or psychological harm on humans. And so despite the diversity of beliefs regarding demonic origins, there is generally broad agreement across cultures and societies influenced by both Jewish and Hellenistic Greek and Roman paradigms that spirits of this nature can and do behave malevolently. So the corpus of Luke-Acts presents a number of exorcism stories. And although a larger study could example all of these in exhaustive detail, for our purposes, I want to highlight just a few examples to draw out some principles of how the first Christians would have viewed demon, demon possession from, uh, from, a, from a social perspective, from kind of a, a socio-anthropological perspective. What do these demons do to individuals and groups? And so the accounts of demon possession here are, what we're about to do is examine an account of demon possession and then compare it with an account of what effects Holy Spirit indwelling had for the first Christian communities. So the first example I want to look at comes from Luke chapter 8. So if you, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 8, it's a story that we're all familiar with, but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, read it for us. In this account, Jesus and the disciples encounter a man in the region across the Lake of Galilee. Uh, another interesting thing, Matthew, Mark, and John always refer to it as a sea. Luke, who's a little bit more well-traveled, refers to it as a lake. lake <laughs> the Lake of Galilee is smaller than any of the Great Lakes, in case you were unaware of this kind of the size comparison. So, just interesting. So, starting in Luke 8, 26. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man, who, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Interesting that he would use the term torment, especially when you compare with what happened to Saul earlier, how he was tormented. Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the swine, and the swine rushed down to the lake and were drowned. When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. <coughs> People came out to see what happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. And those who had seen it 
told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much good God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This man's social reality is a forced exile, an involuntary ostracism from his home and family. And as we saw earlier in the texts related to goat demons, specifically that they were thought to inhabit wilderness regions, these demons in Luke 8 also drove their host out into uninhabited places where people were not likely to come. Mark 5.5 gives us another important detail. It says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, the demon-possessed man was always howling and lacerating himself. So lacerating is another way we can translate this Greek word here. Some translations say beating himself or something like that. Living amongst the tombs and cutting himself with rocks, this demon-possessed man was gradually ensuring that in due time he would join his neighbors in death. The man's deliverance in light of his demonic possession, is actually somewhat ironic. A filling of evil spirits drove him out amongst the unclean tombs. But after his encounter with Jesus, who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, the demons were driven out amongst the unclean swine. In the man's encounter with Jesus, the spirit-filled representative of God's kingdom par excellence ends his societal estrangement and personal degradation. Jesus politely objects, to the man's request to follow him, and instead he encourages him to be reunited with his loved ones in order to, quote, declare how much God has done for you. Jesus, as representative of the already arrived and still fast approaching kingdom of God, evident in large part, though by no means entirely, by the Spirit-filled church, Jesus restores this man's humanity to him by releasing him from egregious oppression and torturous dehumanization. So additionally, we can turn to Acts chapter 16. After Paul and his companions land in Philippi, they find a place of prayer and several women gather together. According to Acts, this begins the Philippian congregation. So starting in Acts 16, 16, Luke says, One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who declare to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they brought them out before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had stripped them of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods, and they threw them in prison. Possession of this kind was common enough in the pagan world. This particular spirit that indwelt this girl is a is called a pneuma puthona, a spirit of a pythoness. The same sort of spirit that stood behind the most famous of all Greek oracles, the Oracle of Delphi, the Oracle of Apollo, whose priestess was called a pythoness after the 
Apollo who slayed the great Python. It's this famous kind of spirit that empowers her to divine or to give oracles. The word Luke uses for her activity uh, as, as she's doing this is mantuomai. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is used exclusively for pagan divination. And it occurs only here in the New Testament. This girl is also described as a paideske, paideske, which in the New Testament refers to a female of the slave class. As a slave, she was legally the property of her owners. A useful slave was profitable, if nothing else. But a slave possessed by a fortune-telling spirit could be quite lucrative, as Luke indicates. Uh, but despite whatever psychological effects such regular possession would likely have had on the young girl, and other sources indicate that when when these it's often young girls, especially the Oracle of Delphi, when they were uh, in the midst of uh, giving their oracles. Uh, the descriptions of them it really do make it sound, seem like they are insane. They're, they're depictions of uh, them writhing, and it seems like they're in pain, and their body contorts in uncomfortable ways, and occasionally different voices. It's, it's physiologically and psychologically horrific what happens. And the, whatever psychological effects of such regular possession would have had on the young girl, she's kept in this position, enslaved, by her and exploited by her owners. But the Holy Spirit-filled community, on the other hand, does not engage in the economic enslavement and exploitation of its members. Instead, the spirit indwelt community embraces the suffering of its members and exalts those of low economic status, or in this girl's case in Acts 16, those of no economic status. In order that no one may be beholden to economic exploitation, Luke says in Acts 4, uh, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but they, everything they owned was held in common with great powers. The apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to those who had need. So in stark contrast to the rule of demons, which enfeebles and victimizes the host, those ruled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, long for and realize the liberation of their brothers and sisters by sacrificial giving of their own means and resources to redeem them from the all too easily exploited lower rungs of society. And the juxtaposition of demon possession and Holy Spirit indwelling in Luke Acts highlights how the kingdom of God is breaking into the world and destroying the works of the devil. It's evident in just these few episodes that demon possession is an egregious form of dehumanization that manifests in masochism, ostracism, enslavement, and exploitation, to name a few. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, represented either in the person of Jesus or in the Spirit-filled church, initiates the ultimate sublimation of humanity. In Luke 11:20, Jesus links the arrival of the kingdom of heaven with his power over demons. The kingdom of God in this verse and elsewhere in the Gospels envisions not necessarily a place like heaven, but primarily a quality or state, like the reign or rule of God. The fact of the matter is that since the kingdom of God has broken into the world, albeit not completely, what were once considered hopeless situations and helpless persons are no longer found bereft of hope or help. 
The arrival of the kingdom of heaven has ushered in a new era for Christ's followers, and the old ways of the world are gradually crumbling under the pressure of God's reign. And Jesus' power over demons, therefore, is intended to be a clear sign that God's reign has broken into the world. And the ushering in of God's reign is accomplished in a unique way by the outpouring of God's own spirit on his people in the last days, prophesied in Joel 2 and realized in Acts 2. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Joel calls for a nationwide, nationwide repentance. And after this period of repentance, in Joel 2, 18 through 27, he depicts how God will heal land and that plants, animals, and people will recuperate their losses. And so after repentance and healing in Joel 2, 28, God says those famous lines, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on my male and female slaves. In those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The indwelling an empowering Holy Spirit is the signpost that marks the beginning of the end of Satan's reign over the world. And where he once held persons under his demonic power, stirred up violence and bloodshed, degraded, enslaved, and exploited humans made in God's image, the Holy Spirit drives him and his deeds out by fostering peace and concord, dignifying, liberating, and empowering humans made in God's image. It is the Spirit's empowering presence that engenders the true and ultimate sublimation of humanity rather than the worship of power that witchcraft and demons offer or try to. And so I think it, in light of this biblical paradigm, I think it's useful for us as Christians to be aware of what demon possession really does to individuals and groups. And it's useful for us to be biblically and culturally informed, to be aware of these differences so we can engage in fruitful conversations that, to me at least, seem inevitable. Thank you very much. Our, our time officially wraps up at 9.30, and it's 9.15. I wanted to give plenty of time for, for questions, and so... I. Please, please fire away. I, I, I will do my best, uh, and I'll just go around as I see you. Yes, sir. Thank you, Kevin. That was marvelous. Thank you. Um, it sounds like something that you didn't want to talk about, but... Uh, <laughs> there were a few things I mentioned that I didn't necessarily need to talk about. Exactly. And uh, it seems to me from this kind of data that you're driven to the conclusion that uh, demonology was simply the worldview at, uh, at a certain time. It's not even a heavy worldview in the Old Testament, but, you know, between the Testaments and uh, Jesus' day, uh, Greco-Roman. And so you think that uh, the exorcisms and the miracles and these sorts of things were just God dealing with the people on their own terms. What do you think about that? I think that that's, I, I generally think that that's right. That's, that's where I am right now. And a, a, a quick example, I think there's very particular reasons why 
maybe we aren't told specifically about the creation of the sun and moon in Genesis, but the greater light and lesser light. And that there's, there's careful distinction in, in Genesis creation accounts to say these, these are not gods themselves. These are not gods themselves. And obviously, if we take the Old Testament seriously, in its presentation of uh, faithlessness in uh, the majority of the Israelites, obviously faithfulness was an issue. And so why, why muddy the waters? Why, why need to know about all these other things when they had seen everything and continued to tell the stories and yet still had all the trouble? So I, I, th- I think that that's right. And you know, looking at kind of the history of, you know, of demonology or even a, a study of Satan and where he may or may not appear in the Old Testament, <coughs> outside my area of expertise, my, I'm getting my, my PhD in New Testament. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to pass along some of that kind of stuff to people who are, are better informed. But why muddy the waters? And you know, why, give, why give people other options to sacrifice rather than Yahweh? <laughs> so, yeah. Good question. Uh, anybody else? I, I, yes, I please. An observation. Um, and piggybacks on what he said mm-hmm. a little bit. Some of the demon possession that we see in the Bible, we now know as illnesses. Mm-hmm. And then others are not as readily explained. The, the, like, like this young girl who they call a fortune teller. You know, in Acts 16. Maybe, yeah. yeah, and maybe she'd been trained by her owners to, to do certain things. I, I don't know, but I've just always wondered, I wonder why some things are pretty clearly illnesses today, and others are not as easy to explain. Did you notice any differences? So, uh, yes. And again, so I'm... Uh, I, does, does anybody here know the name Richard Oster from Harding School of Theology in Memphis? And people familiar with that? I'm a student of Richard Oster's, and so... And also, um, I'm, I'm writing my dissertation with Craig Keener uh, at Asbury Seminary. Um, both guys who are very well-versed in primary sources of the ancient world, specifically Greco-Roman ancient world. The more we generally know about the world in which the Bible was written, Old and New Testaments, the better we're able to understand some of the kinds of things that are going on in there. So I mention all that to say that there are discussions amongst pagans that differentiate between demon possession and mental illness. They're actually Pagans are having that same kind of discussion as well. And I'm trying to find uh, it was something that I skipped over because, like I said, I wanted to make sure that we had, we had plenty of time to be able to do that. I might have dropped it down into to a footnote in here. But there's a, um, there's a work where uh, basically a, a pagan doctor, a pagan physician, is complaining that people are... Okay, here it is. Um, I, I cut this out, but I, I said, unbalanced mental states and the behavior of demon possession, so mental illness and demon possession, were similar enough to draw some criticism from <coughs> Hippocrates uh, against... Uh, that's not related to the word hypocrite, by the way. Um, just, just in case. <coughs> Hippocrates, uh, he criticized them against would-be healers who treated not the medical condition, but, and then I quote from him, but prescribed for them purifications and cleansings, most of their talk turning on the intervention of gods and demons. And that's quoted from a work called The Sacred Disease. And so 
you are correct that in our perspective, we look at these kinds of things and say, man, you know, it's, some of this stuff really does look like what you could find in the DSM, you know, for yeah. um, you know, psychology and, and you know, psychological disorders. And then there's some other things that are, are just clearly demon possession or all the signs indicate that way. Pagans were having that kind of conversation as well. And so that's not, it, it's, it's all too easy for, for critics of uh, not just the New Testament or the Bible, but critics of the ancient world in general to dismiss that and say, well, they didn't know what they're talking about. They called it demon possession. That's because they were all you know, hyper polytheists and, and, and you know, they were dumb and uneducated and they didn't know what they're talking about. Well, people who say that kind of thing about the ancient world run the risk of maybe showing their lack of education about, about this kind of thing. So, yeah. Long, long answer for, for that question. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, this is a long roundabout question. I'm wondering, are there, does Pepperdine uh, in teaching missionaries or any other organization that's teaching missionaries how to deal with present-day cultures that believe in this kind of uh, spiritual ability to speak to the dead, in the context of this, when I was visiting some missionaries from, I think they were a world gospel mission or something like that, down in Brazil, they took a number of us visitors to see a Macumba ceremony down in Brazil, if you're familiar with that. I'm not. So the Macumba is the local Brazilian voodoo type of spiritual thing. Okay. And the missionaries would have to deal with that when you're teaching converts, right? That yeah. they believe in this thing. And so I took us down as an educational experience, and we were there, and this person began smoking the cigar and breathing in the incense, and supposedly in the trance state, could then be an intermediary to, to the spirits of the dead, or questions that uh, people, in probably uh, the locals, had for their departed dead. Right. So, is that kind of training being given to missionaries to know how to deal with that? Because there are cultural groups where they would be working that really believe in this kind of right, yeah. spiritual world. So I, I can't speak for Pepperdine because I, this is my first time here. Okay. And so, but I know that, um, I know that across this, the, the theological spectrum that is represented within churches of Christ, within universities affiliated with churches of Christ, I know that uh, there are uh, folks and individuals who do teach that you're going to encounter this kind of stuff, and you, yeah. Here's biblically how we we see to deal with this. Um, I, I was not a Bible major, uh, and so I, I didn't necessarily receive that training. But uh, I'm I'm working on my doctorate at Asbury Seminary, which is uh, rooted strongly in the the uh, traditions of John Wesley. And there's, uh, there's a strong uh, charismatic element, especially in the seminary uh, of that uh, uh, institution. And um, uh, many of them are, are trained very, very specifically in how to deal with these kinds of things. So outside of Churches of Christ, I'd say, yeah, it happens a lot. Within Churches of Christ, I would, I would say I, I'm, a, I'm aware that it is happening. And I know that you're sitting next to a trio of, of Harding University Bible majors. Who might be able to speak better to that? Um, yeah, maybe afterwards or, or, or so. Or you, Bob Major? No. So maybe two. Closer. Yeah, close. Yes, sir. What did you were you saying happened at the point of Jesus coming 
and in relationship to the demons and the, the control and so forth. Did I understand that correctly? Uh, that there is a, was a, is a difference in your mind as to what the demons could do? Oh, as yeah, so this was something that, uh, that I, just, I, I found interesting and because it was, because I, I saw it as kind of marginally related that, so at what, what, he's, what he's talking about is uh, the, the spirit that affects Saul, it, it's stated very explicitly four times, it's a spirit sent from God. And then later on in Tobit, we see it, it appears like this spirit just acts independently. And then on in the New Testament, we see the same kind of thing. And, and I honestly wonder, well, why is that? Maybe Saul was a special case. Uh, because he was supposed to be the Lord's anointed, and so maybe that's the exception. And the rule was that generally, you know, demons kind of operated how they saw fit. Um, to be honest, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. But the way that the New Testament and other literature from the period of the Second Temple Judaism present demons, it does seem as if they operate independently of. God's command and that they do harm individuals because that is what they want and intend to do and that that is part of the reason why Jesus Jesus came in order to basically boot that stuff out and so the issue of divine control and foreknowledge and all that gets into gets into a lot of other issues that that I, I didn't have time to do in, in this study and would not be able to, I think, give a satisfactory answer in the three minutes that we have left. But that I, that I give you just a little bit, it, it really does, just, it's assumed that they can do this kind of thing in the New Testament and it's just not explained it in a lot of detail. Are you saying that's totally wiped out even in the, the countries where they really believe this that she's talking about? Oh, oh, um, are you asking me, do I believe that demon possession happens today? Yes, I do. I, I have, I personally have not seen it. I, I don't think so. If I have, then I was unaware. Um, but I, I have enough trustworthy friends who I, I know they're not crazy and I know they're not lying. And so logically, it seems like they're telling me the truth when they describe these kinds of things happen. And I do have uh, close friends from outside of the United States. A buddy of mine at school who's in my uh, doctoral cohort uh, is from Japan and uh, grew up within uh, Assemblies of God in, in Japan. And uh, his family converted to Christianity because of an encounter with a, uh, a, 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 a demonic force. And his, I think it was his grandmother who converted. And that's, so that's why his family are now Christians and not uh, Shinto or Buddhists or, or whatever they had been. So, yes, I would say, I, based on everything I know and see, I do see that that is still part of the church's mission today. And maybe that ruffles some feathers, and if it does, we can talk about it, but that's, I don't, I don't see that it just all stopped. It, it's certainly not in the New Testament, because in, in a third century source, and I don't have it here, but in, in a third century source, there's a Christian who says, you want to know how you can tell a real Christian, bring in any demon-possessed pagan, and a real Christian can exercise that demon. I uh, got that in a Craig, Craig Keener's two volumes book on miracles. The test for fellowship. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you can you sing uh, you know, Father Abraham or can you exercise a demon? <laughs> Which one? Which one? Yeah. So in, in a third century source. So people who say that all that stopped in the first century, again, 
they don't know the, the ancient world. Yes, ma'am. How do you see the church uh, dealing with demon possession? Because there are places in the scripture that say, like Mark 16, 17, that says, and these signs will accompany believers. They will cast out demons in my name. And in uh, John 14, 12, he says, anyone who uh, believes in me through the things I've been doing, and that is one of the things he was doing. Right, yeah. So how do you see the church dealing with that? Uh, I think because we're at time, this will be our last uh, question. I think I see within, within sort of broader Christianity, I, I, I do see a lot of folks engaging in this kind of thing. I, I've, I've heard enough stories from, again, trustworthy individuals who grew up outside of the United States to where this kind of thing happens regularly enough to where they're sensitive to this. Within the United States, and especially within Churches of Christ, because that's my background, and I currently minister for a, a small church of Christ in Kentucky, um, I don't see a lot of it. And I think it's, I think it's because one of our, I, I want to word this very carefully, uh, because I don't like throwing people or institutions under the bus when they don't necessarily deserve it. Uh, the, the Churches of Christ historically have a lot of good things to offer, and, and, I, and I, my wife and I choose to be choose to remain within churches of Christ. That being said, I think we have historically had an anemic pneumatology. Just our understanding of the spirit ha has been very poor. And I understand some of the historical reasons why maybe that was the case. But I am seeing more folks within churches of Christ kind of have a, a, an awakening to these sorts of things. Now the brothers and sisters of different traditions have been there for a while and uh, so it's, it's you, I, I don't want to say maybe we're playing catch-up, but maybe we're playing catch-up <laughs> a, a little bit. So I'm seeing it happen a little bit more where people are starting to have conferences where the theme is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, here we are. Um, but I, I, do see, I do see more of us starting to say, there's a reality here that maybe we haven't been sensitive to, and I, I think it's, it's time to. So. I see some people involved in this through you know, just talking more openly about the Holy Spirit and asking what does he do rather than saying what we think he doesn't do. Yeah, and, and I, don't want to, I, I don't want to use sectarians as a punching bag, but uh, I think that has been true for many within Churches of Christ, not necessarily those who are sectarian. I didn't grow up in a sectarian Church of Christ, but I, I still didn't hear much about what the Spirit actually did. So. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate everybody being here. Thank you so much.